seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, it's the, the scribes who are going to demonstrate for us this morning this life of self-worship. How do they demonstrate it? Well, they love dressing in long robes. They're, they're expensive and they're showy. They make sure that they are seen out and about in the marketplace in, 21st, in first century Israel. In today's world, they religious life. They're one of those people with a name on a pew in church. And they're at the top of the social table as well. They're the first to be fed at the feast. These guys, they've, they've made it. They've made it in life. They've made it in society. They have other people fawning over them. We can, we can picture them, can't we, I think? And how have they got there? Well, verse 40 is where Jesus sticks the knife in, isn't it, and twists it. They've got there at the expense of other people. Devouring widows' houses. It's not exactly clear in what sense they devoured their houses. This wasn't Hansel and Gretel, but in some senses they were, they were preying on widows. Widows in Jewish culture had special protections. It was the family and the community's responsibility to protect widows and provide for them because no one else was going to do it. But instead, the scribes trample on them in their race to the top. So they've got there by uh, at the expense of other people. They've also got there by religious hypocrisy. They pray long, impressive prayers, which, which should have been all about devotion to God to boost their own reputation and to cover up their own sins. This is a picture of what a life of devotion to yourself inevitably ends up. Take something that is good, something like worship of God, and you will be willing to take it, to turn it into something bad. It might be dressed up as social and religious respectability, but it is. They're easy to criticize. We can see it here. It's obviously wicked. Who in their right mind would, would uh, gain social standing at the expense of, of, of helpless widows? What a terrible thing. And we can probably think of people on TV and in books. Um, there is a, there's a corrupt mayor lining his own pocket at the expense of others. There's a sleazy politician taking, talking a good game about serving his constituents, while all the way, all the easy targets out there, aren't there? But we must recognize where we do this ourselves, too. Here's some examples for you. Let me start with pornography. I don't think you expect me to start there, perhaps, but there are children in the room, but let's turn. And every time you do it, you feed an industry which abuses, manipulates, exploits, and shames countless women, children, and men around the world. It's wicked. Let's talk about parenting, or disturbed your task. I can see some parents' heads shaking, and I can see some children smiling. Um, I did this yesterday. Our tumble dry broke the other week. We had to order a new one, and it arrived yesterday morning. And there was me trying to plug a tumble dryer in. That's all you have to do with a tumble dryer. You just have to plug it in. And I failed. I couldn't, I couldn't manage it. It didn't fit. I hadn't measured it quite properly. Can you believe that? There was me feeling like an utter fool in the kitchen. And in comes Rosa trying to help me, being kind, being helpful. And out of my mouth came all sorts of things putting Rosa down. My shame and idiocy had been exposed, and the result was something that made me feel a little bit better about myself at the expense of someone 
who I should have been kind to. I was supposed to encourage and build her up. We do that all the time, don't we? We trample on other people in our words and in our deeds in service of me, project me, building my kingdom. We do that in all of our relationships, don't we? We need to be really alert to to that. Next time you snap at someone, next time you say something slightly out of control, just just analyze it and say, yep, it's because it was actually about me at that moment and I wasn't happy with it. I needed needed to redress the balance to, to promote me again and outspilled all this horrible stuff. How about our addiction to image and respectability? There's a sense of that in the passage here. We can talk about how important is it to us, the clothes that we wear, the the shoes that you buy, the house that you live in, the car that you drive. Are we constantly wondering what others are thinking of us? Hoping that they think well? Whether it's a big house that says how rich you are or a small house that says how generous you are. Does it matter to us? An addiction to image and respectability will warp and pervert how you relate to people. And it will play out. It will play out in life. And other people will suffer. What about our use of religion, church, as a way to get respect? Let's face it, not many of us come to church because it makes people out there think well of us. It's not really true in our country anymore, is it? But we can come to church in a particular way which makes each other think well of us, can't we? Isn't it true that often when we come to church, our audience is other people rather than Jesus? Do you ever sing in church and think, I hope they can hear how well I'm singing today? Or do you ever not sing in church because you're thinking, I really hope they can't hear how badly I'm singing today? Do you come to prayer meetings, at least in part, feeling pleased that you're going to be seen to be at the prayer meeting? Instead of coming here to worship God, and to serve other people, we find ourselves expecting this experience to serve us. To make Project Me more successful and build my kingdom. There are countless other examples I could talk about, aren't there? Many of them are really subtle. Some of them are really obvious. But the point is this. When your own glory and honor and reputation are more important to you than they should be, you will be willing to break any rules or ignore any rules in order to protect yourself. A life of devotion to yourself is wicked. We must repent of it. Secondly, a life of devotion to yourself is futile. I look at verse 40. What's Jesus' verdict on people who live like this? They will receive the greater condemnation. A life of devotion to yourself is at the top of the list that Jesus the King is against. He is against it, and he will destroy it. Chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus has spent all of chapters 11 and 12 of Mark's gospel in the temple, arguing with the leaders, exposing their hypocrisy, pronouncing judgment on it. They had turned what was a good thing, given by God, into a bad thing, a means to their own end, self-worship, as we've seen. 
And so as Jesus leaves the temple for the final time ever, imagine how significant that was, he reminds his disciples that empty religion like this will be destroyed. It has no future. You, you can imagine them, can't you? Wide-eyed with, with wonder at this amazing building. And Jesus says, yep, it's days are numbered. Imagine those stones toppling down. This place which was supposed to be a place for God's glory to dwell in. A place where people could come and see how great God is. And all of the Jewish faith was supposed to show that. But it's been corrupted and twisted into yet another way for man to serve himself. And so Jesus symbolically leaves it now. And pronounces judgment on empty religion, self-worship. There are large buildings in this city too about which we could probably say similar things. But rather than point fingers at them again, we should be aware of the things that we as a church display, ways which we display this devotion to self and recognize that that attitude is one that brings God's judgment. Devotion to self is futile. Jesus will bring it down. We were discussing this passage as elders last week, and one of the guys described it as like being on the Titanic. You know, it doesn't matter how well-dressed you are, it doesn't matter how well the people on the Titanic think of you, the Titanic is going down. Your respect and reputation are futile and will get you nowhere. A life of devotion to self is futile. And finally, let's see that a life of devotion to God is worth it. And we see this as we meet the widow in chapter 12 and verse uh, 41. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You can picture the scene. I think it's, it's worth imagining it, seeing it in your mind's eye. These rich people are coming along. I think we're meant to see them in a, in a similar category to the scribes that we met earlier. And you can imagine them putting their hands inside their long robes and, and pulling out the bag of coins, giving it a little jangle, holding it high in the air so that as they, as they tip it up, the multitude of coins inside could be seen falling down into the offering box below, heard clinking and jangling away as they fall down. And the bag goes back into the pocket and out comes a second bag and maybe even a third or a fourth and on it goes. Nothing's done in a rush. It's all done in plain sight. Take your time. Make sure that you're seen. But then along comes a poor widow. Her offering makes almost no noise and takes almost no time as the two tiny coins fall into the box with barely a tinkle. And on she goes. I've got a penny there. That's what it was. That's all it does. And it's gone. Do you picture it? And Jesus says, this lady is the one who has given the most out of everyone who visited the temple that morning. It's astonishing, isn't it? She's given everything she had. Literally, it's she gave her life. 
This is devotion to God. Now, the point is not that we should literally empty our bank accounts. It's not the worst thing in the world to do, but it might not be the best thing in the world to do. The point is seeing this wholehearted devotion to God in contrast with devotion to self that we saw before. It's a devotion that entrusts your whole life to God and says, this is yours. It's not mine. And devotion to God like this looks completely bonkers, doesn't it? It's insane. You know, what's she going to eat for tea tonight? She knows that she lives in a culture when people aren't looking after her as they should do. She can't rely on them. If she could, she wouldn't be in the position where she only had two half pennies. So what's she going to eat? How's she going to light and heat her home with no money for oil? I don't know. It's crazy. But the lady is doing what our verse for the year says. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. Turn to it if you like, or just listen as I read. Remember our verse for the year? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. She's lost her life, hasn't she? She's given it up to Jesus. And she's going to save it. But, but, but how? how? How can a life like that be a wise or a safe way to live? You know, without pension, without future planning, without enough money in the bank to buy a new car when your current one suddenly breaks down and, you, and you're stuck. You know, that's how we live, isn't it? We think in those categories. We're planning ahead. We're, we're making sure that we are providing our own safety and security in life. That's how 21st century works. So how can this life be a wise or a safe way to live? what this woman demonstrates. Well, that's what we will move on to in, into chapter 13, where Jesus is going to show us why the widow's life is both the wise and safe way to live. It looks crazy, but it's the way. Now, chapter 13 is long. It's quite tricky in some ways. We are not going to spend ages on it. We're not far off finishing. One of the reasons it's long and tricky is, in large part is because it talks about two big events in the future. And at different times in this chapter, Jesus is talking about one of them, and at other times he's talking about the other, and at other times he might be talking about both of them at, at once or in different ways, and it's not always entirely um, easy to trace out. But the two things that Jesus is talking about are, firstly, uh, the destruction of the temple um, by the Roman Emperor Titus in AD 70. There's a nicely documented historical event. There's some uh, pictures and artwork there. This was massive. Okay, the, tent, uh, the, the emperor Titus came and besieged Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. The temple was desecrated, there was murder, there was famine, there was cannibalism. There was no stone left on top of another. So that's one event talk, spoken about in this chapter. The other event is the return of Jesus and events leading up to that. Wars, earthquakes persecution of Christians, cosmic events like the sun and the moon going out. So we've got two, two big things being spoken about at different times as the chapter goes on. A reasonable starting point for understanding the chapter is, is simply that the destruction of the temple is a little picture of the judgment coming at the end of time. That's just one, one helpful starting point to, to understand the chapter. But for our purposes this morning, rather than getting distracted by the different predictions and, and that element of the passage, I simply want us to see that Jesus here is painting a picture of a world under judgment 
a world that is going to be turned upside down. And he's saying, my people will be safe in that time. Okay? So, the world being turned upside down, verses uh, 7 and 8, for example, uh, there's wars, there's rooms of wars, there's nations and kingdoms rising up against each other. All that seems stable in our world will become unstable. Even families, verse 12, will be disrupted and turn against each other. Christians will be persecuted in that way. There will be distress, verse 19, like never seen before. The whole chapter is a, is a picture of confusion and, and panic where everything that we build for and rely on is turned upside down. Even the cosmos itself, verse 24 and verse 25, just begins to disintegrate as the sun and the moon and the stars go out and fall from heaven. So here's, here's the point. Amidst all of that chaos and confusion... God's people will not need to panic. Even when they themselves suffer, when their lives are turned upside down. Through it all, Jesus, by his spirit, will be with his people, verses 9 to 12, helping them in their suffering, in their persecution. Um, These events are described as like birth pains. We don't panic when labor starts. It's It's tough, it's hard, but we know that something good is coming out of it. We know this is supposed to happen. There is hope at the end of it. In a world turned upside down, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. God's people, or the elect as they're called a few times in the passage, they are safe and secure, kept safe by God, verse 20 for example, because he loves them, because he's looking out for them. Until verse 26 and 27, Jesus comes back in power and glory. He will come in great glory. Notice he'll come in the clouds. Clouds were a symbol of God's glory, weren't they? You know, in the, um, in the temple, uh, when the presence of, of God uh, filled the temple, it was a cloud. The temple's been destroyed or going to be destroyed but Jesus is saying glory is still coming, clouds are still coming when Jesus comes back when I come back he says it's going to be with clouds of power and glory the glory of the temple which was turned into empty religion and is going to be destroyed is being replaced by Jesus himself, the new temple the true temple and the greatest glory of all So all through the chapter, Jesus is giving this reassurance, yes, chaos, yes, pain, yes, distress, but yes, I'm in control, and I'm coming back in glory. So you can trust me. You see, this this widow's life looks completely bonkers, giving everything to Jesus, but actually that is the only sensible life in the light of a glorious king who's coming back. It's the only wise life. Build for that glory, not your own. Wait for that glory. Trust in that king who has you, who's looking for you, who will save you. See, a life like that, 
one which gives all to this great and glorious king, is a life safe in the hands of that great and glorious king. The one who's in control, the one that we can trust. It's a life this chapter makes clear that there is nothing comfortable about this life. There is nothing comfortable about it. But there is everything safe about it. Because you're his. And he's coming back for you. And will keep you. The day that he's coming back is coming soon. Verses 28 to 31. Verse 32, we don't know exactly when it's going to be. It's coming soon, but we don't know when. So for now, we simply wait with patience and endurance. Knowing that despite the present suffering and the suffering that will come more and more probably in the future, it will be worth waiting for that king. It'll be worth being devoted to Jesus, giving him our all and laying aside all of our attempts to build life for our own glory. That day is coming soon. Be on your guard. Look for it. Wait for it. And trust in Jesus, the King who will bring it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... Uh, We need to confess to you that much of our time and effort and thought is spent building up a life which is all about us. We need to confess to you the impact that that has on people around us as they suffer the consequences. We know that that is wrong and we ask for your forgiveness And we ask that you might open our eyes and strengthen our souls and our resolve and our spirits to the goodness, the worthiness and the possibility of living a life devoted to you instead, which will be not comfortable, but which is so very safe because King Jesus is destroying everything else and returning in his glory to take us home. Please would we wait patiently and with endurance for that day. We long for it and we ask you to build our trust in Jesus and our hope in that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.